But today we're starting a new message series called Winning Faith. And we'll be looking at the Bible book of James. We'll be walking through it pretty much verse by verse. And it will give us a lot of insight and it will help us to take our faith, our relationship with God, and make it real and practical and a positive part of our life. It will help us to move beyond just talking about what we believe and uh, to really living it out in our everyday life. And some of you know what I'm talking about because you used to have that kind of relationship with God. You believed that God could do absolutely anything, that he could change you, that he could use you, that he could change the world through you. And you took risks for him, and you gave yourself to him completely, serving others and the church. And when you look back, you realize that was the absolute best time of your life spiritually. You look back and you see that that's when you were the closest to God, where you knew that your faith was winning battles and making a difference. And maybe you've drifted away from that kind of faith, or maybe you never really had it. You always wanted it, you always heard about it, but you never really had it. Well, if you want winning faith or you want it back, This series is for you. The five chapters of this letter will give us all practical ways to take action so that we can claim or reclaim a winning faith. So as we begin this series, let's pray together, shall we? Would you just, in your own words, silently say something like this to God? Would you say, I'm I'm ready. I want to hear from you. Speak to me. Heavenly Father, in this quiet room, we are dealing with different things, different stressors in our life and different joys. And Father, we just uh, are still for a minute waiting to hear from you. Father, I don't want these people just to hear my words or my opinions. I want them to hear your heart. And so, Father, would you get past my humble words so that we can experience your heart. For it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now, would you raise your hand if you have a sibling? You have a brother or a sister. Go ahead, raise your hand. That's most people in the room. Now, if you don't, for this experience that we're about to have, just substitute a cousin or, you know, a a best friend, okay? But here's what I want you to do right now. I want you to imagine that your brother or your sister is a little weird, okay? Some of you are thinking that's not a stretch at all for me um, because they really are weird. But here's this scenario. They quit their job. They just up and quit their job one day and they become a street preacher. They spend all their time preaching on the street and You want to be polite, so you go out to hear them, and you're shocked to see hundreds of people there listening to them. And the people there aren't mocking them. They're really listening. I mean, they're listening with that kind of hang on every word type of listening. But it's still your sibling, and you still think they're weird. And so you're still trying to get them to get a real job, You're trying to get them to be 
nicer to your parents and spend more time visiting your parents. And um, then one day, this person pulls you aside and they confide in you that they think that they are the Holy One from God. They think that they are the rescuer that we've all been waiting for for centuries that we read about in the pages of the Bible, the one that you learned about in Sunday school. Now let that sink in just a minute. Okay, your sibling says they are the Messiah. They're God's son. They're the savior of the world. What would you do? Would you believe it? I know. I wouldn't either. I mean, that would be strange, wouldn't it? Well, what you're feeling right now is what Jesus' siblings felt about him. John chapter 7, verse 5, it's not in your notes, but it tells us that the brothers of Jesus did not believe in him. The brothers of Jesus didn't believe in him, and we kind of understand that because I can't imagine what it would take for me to begin to believe that one of my siblings was the Holy One sent from God. I kind of understand that. But apparently, one thing managed to convince at least one of Jesus' brothers to believe in him. I expect that if I had seen my brother die and then be buried and then three days later have seen him walk out of the tomb alive again, that I might begin to listen to what he was preaching. I might begin to think again about whether I'm going to believe that he is the Holy One sent from God. And James, who wrote the letter that we'll be looking at for the next six weekends, was Jesus's younger brother. He was the son of Mary and Joseph. And though it is clear that he didn't initially believe in Jesus, James 1 makes it clear that he did come to believe in Jesus. Look at what it says in verse 1 of chapter 1. This letter is from James, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. I am writing to the 12 tribes, Jewish believers scattered abroad. Now it's interesting that he doesn't declare himself the brother of Jesus, but he calls himself a slave of, quote, the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, he apparently had come to believe in Jesus as the Messiah, as the rescuer from God, because that is what the title Christ means. He also indicates that Jesus, his brother, is Lord, and that he is the slave of both God and Jesus because he now understands that Jesus wasn't just a normal human being, that Jesus wasn't just a normal human brother, but that he was God in the flesh and therefore the master, the Lord of James. So we're going to learn how to have a winning faith from the brother of Jesus who had severe doubts and struggles in order to believe in Jesus. And that's good news. That's good news for those of you that struggle with doubts. It's good news for some of you who have not yet come to believe that Jesus is who he said he was because uh, you're in good company. 
James struggled too, but he ended up with a winning faith. He became a church leader in the church in Jerusalem. The verse tells us that he is writing to the 12 tribes of Israel. That's a common way that the Bible uses to refer to the Jewish people. He's writing to them because the persecution around them has been really difficult. It's been really strong, and they, as a result, have been scattered to all of the nations of the world. Some have been sent there against their will. Some have fled the suffering and the persecution to go to other parts of the area. And they're being persecuted, first of all, by Jewish people who didn't believe in Jesus because they were saying that he was the Messiah and the Jewish people didn't want to believe that. That was unpopular with the Jewish leaders. They were also being persecuted by the Roman government because they were saying that Jesus had come back to life after that he had been crucified by the Romans and that was making the Romans look bad. And so all of this persecution was coming upon Christians. And so James is writing to the Christ followers of his time who were really hurting. And he begins his letter by talking to them about how to deal with difficulties. And still today, what sidetracks many of us from having a strong and a winning faith are the hurts and the problems and the frustrations of life. When people have difficulties and troubles in their life, they begin to doubt God, or maybe they get mad at God, or they try other solutions that make sense in our world, but are different than what God says will work. So let's spend the rest of our time today in the first part of chapter one. Now, if you have your Bible or you have your device and you want to open it, we'll be spending all of our time in the first 18 verses of the book of James, and so you can look there. But the scriptures will also be in your notes and on the screen behind me. But let's look at chapter one to see the wisdom in this passage for dealing with difficult situations so we can grasp hold of a winning faith. The first thing the passage encourages us to do is to endure the trouble life causes. Endure the trouble life causes. There was a man who owned a boat rental shop on a lake. And he looked out the window of his office one day and he squinted a little bit. Then he got on the loudspeaker and he said, boat 99, come back to the dock, your time is up. And he looked out a few minutes later and the boat had not even attempted to move. And so again, he got on the loudspeaker and he said, boat number 99, your time is up, return to the dock now. About that time, his assistant came in and said, there must be a mistake. We only have 75 boats. The guy looked out the window and he squinted. He got on the loudspeaker and he said, boat 66, are you having some problems out there? Well, we all have difficulties, don't we? We all understand what it's like to have difficulties. And it'd be great, wouldn't it, if the day you became a Christian, the moment that you became a follower of Christ, if all of your troubles just went away and you never again in your life had any problems or any difficulties, that'd be great, wouldn't it? Yeah, it doesn't happen. That's not the way that it works. Troubles continue. Life continues to cause you troubles, and those problems come without warning. And you know exactly what I mean, don't you? Life is going great. 
it's a great day to be alive. And then the phone rings and the voice on the other end says, I have some bad news. Or life is going well and all of your problems seem to be beginning to work out. And then there's the crash of glass and the crushing of metal. And life's never the same again. See, whatever the problems, problems come into each of our lives and they come without warning and they come at the worst times and like it or not, we have to deal with them. We have to deal with them whether we like it or not. That is a part of real life. And the troubles that life causes are things we all have to deal with because they're just outside of our control. So James begins his letter by telling us how to develop a winning faith by learning how to deal with the difficulties and the trials that come our way. In James chapter 1, verses 2 through 12, I see four suggestions for dealing with difficulties. And you won't like them all, but let's go through them fairly quickly, shall we? First, he says, change your perspective. Change your perspective. Now, if you were here last weekend, Pastor Seth talked to you about perspective, and James seems to feel that that's important too. Look at verses two through four. Dear brothers and sisters, when troubles of any kind come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. So let it grow, for when your endurance is fully developed, you will be perfect and complete, needing nothing. Now, what kind of instruction is this? Whenever troubles of any time come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. And some of you are looking at a translation that says it even in a different way. It says, consider it pure joy when troubles come your way. Now, do you do that? I confess I don't. You know, when a problem comes into my life, I don't go, I am so happy. What great joy this is. Do you do that? Do you think that's what he's saying? Does he really mean that we should be happy when we're hurting? And if we're not, does that mean we're sinful? Notice he didn't say feel great joy during painful times, but consider it an opportunity for great joy. Why would we consider it an opportunity for great joy? Well, verse 3 tells us, and that is that our difficult times give us an opportunity to grow, and growth is good. Growth can bring great joy. So I gained a couple of things about changing my perspective from this passage. The first thing is this, suffering's going to happen. It's inevitable. Things are going to happen to all of us. Godly people and people who ignore God will all have difficulties. It's going to happen. And the other thing that I see in this passage is this. Growth will result from my difficulties if I let it. Growth will result if I let it. And this may not be comforting, but it's true. Some of the life's best lessons are learned in the school of hard knocks. I shared with some of you before that when our daughter at six months old was diagnosed with a chronic and life-threatening, devastating illness, one of my family members called me, and while he was talking to me, he said, well, one thing's for sure, this is going to make you a better pastor. And I was mad. But I was quiet, 
And then later in the conversation, he said it again. He said, one thing's for sure, this is going to make you a better pastor. And I said, frankly, I'd rather be a lousy pastor. Today, I don't know what makes me matter. The fact that he said it or the fact that he was right. They both make me mad. You see, I don't like it either, but suffering is a good teacher. And if you're going to suffer, you might as well grow. You see, our problems help us grow far faster than our successes. A little poem that I heard years ago is true. It goes this way. I walked a mile with pleasure. She chatted all the way, but left me none the wiser for all she had to say. I walked a mile with sorrow, and ne'er a word said she, but oh, the things I learned from her when sorrow walked with me. We learn far more from suffering. And I don't like that, but suffering's a good teacher, and if you're going to suffer, you might as well grow. So as these verses say, change your perspective and celebrate the growth. Don't celebrate the pain. Celebrate the growth that will come through your difficult times because it will help you to become mature in Christ. Second, be sure to pray. Be sure to pray. He says to deal with your difficulties, we should pray. Look at verses 5 through 8. If you need wisdom, ask our generous God and he will give it to you. He will not rebuke you for asking. But when you ask him, be sure that your faith is in God alone. Do not waver for a person with divided loyalty is unsettled as a wave of the sea that is blown and tossed by the wind. Such people should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Their loyalty is divided between God and the world, and they are unstable in everything they do. Now, apparently, the people that James is writing to had some problems with prayer, and this happens many times to people who are going through difficult times during pains and problems. I mean, it happens to us too. We get disappointed that our prayers aren't answered the way that we had hoped for. And so people back away from prayer or they begin to shut God out. But James says, don't do that. He says, don't push God away. He says, if you lack wisdom, you should ask God. And in one short verse, in verse five, he spends a little bit of time talking about how God gives. He says, God gives generously. God gives generously to all and then he says that God gives without finding faults. When we ask God specifically for wisdom, we don't need to fear his response. He will give us wisdom generously, and he gives it to you without scolding you. But he spends three verses, verses 6 through 8, talking a lot about how we ask he says that we should ask believing in him completely and trusting him alone. But he points out that often when people are dealing with difficulties, they are people who doubt and have divided loyalty. They're trying to find an answer in the world uh, and also asking God. So we need to pray believing that God can and will give us the wisdom that we need to help us through the hard times. Next, James says we should reject self-pity. We should reject self-pity. Self -pity. Look at verses 9 through 11. 
Believers who are poor have something to boast about, for God has honored them. And those who are rich should boast that God has humbled them. They will fade away like a little flower in the field. The hot sun rises and the grass withers. The little flower droops and fails and falls, and its beauty fades away. In the same way, the rich will fade away with all their achievements. Does that passage seem a little out of place to anybody else? I mean, it doesn't quite seem to fit. Now, James is going to tell us that the people that he's writing to had some problems with prejudice. They had some problems with favoritism, especially towards people who were rich. And we're going to deal with that. In fact, we're going to deal with that next weekend. But why does he mention that here while he's talking about dealing with difficulties? Well, I think there could be a few good lessons here. One is, and this may seem harsh to say, but one of the lessons is this, your suffering doesn't make you special. Your suffering doesn't make you special. You haven't been singled out. It happens to everyone. Sometimes when we suffer, we think God is mad at us, that he's punishing us, but it happens to all of us. Cancer hits families who follow Jesus and families that never have. And unemployment happens to people at the lowest level of our employment ladder who are poorest and also people in the job market who are in management and who are wealthy. The passage it says, you aren't particularly special, so don't have self-pity. It may say something else, though. Maybe part of what it's saying is it may indicate that rich people have more of a problem when they suffer because they think they're better than that. They, they think they're better. They think they're above that, that that shouldn't happen to them. In their mind, they're smarter and they're better trained and so they should be able to avoid problems. But suffering does tend to humble us all as we realize we all end up dealing with difficulties. And so reject self-pity and recognize that suffering happens to all of us. It isn't God punishing you. It isn't God singling you out. The last lesson in this area might be the most important. He says, don't quit. Don't quit. Look at verse 12. God blesses those who patiently endure testing and temptation Afterward, they will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. He says, in the end, those who continue to love him, those who continue to obey him, those who always trust in him in the midst of their problems will receive a reward. And really, I think he might be talking about a couple of different rewards. The first reward would be here on earth. It would be standing the test. It would be being able to stand up in the midst of this and enduring the problems. It's becoming complete and mature, as he mentioned in verse 4. It's growing stronger in your relationship with God and grasping hold of that winning faith. But the second reward is what's mentioned here. It's that crown of life. It's the victor's crown that Jesus himself will place on our heads when we get to eternity, when we enter into heaven with him. And so these uh, four suggestions, changing your perspective and praying and rejecting self-pity and not quitting, help us to endure the troubles that life causes each of us. And those are troubles that we just really have no control over. 
But, I, but we can't quit without at least glancing at a different area. James also says that we can deal with difficulties if we learn to avoid the trouble you cause. Avoid the trouble you cause. Let's face it, some, maybe most of our problems in life are as a result of decisions we've made, choices that we've made. They're problems that we've caused ourselves. Look again at verse 12, and then we'll skip down to verse 16. God blesses those who patiently endure testing and temptation. Afterwards, they will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. Verse 16, so don't be misled, my dear brothers and sisters. Testing is what happens when the problems that life causes for all of us happen. But failing to deal with temptation leads to the troubles that we cause for ourselves. And we cause ourselves troubles when we let temptation mislead us, as verse 16 says. So how can we avoid being misled? James gives two steps in these verses. The first is this, be honest about where it's coming from. Be honest about where where it's coming from. Look at verse 13. And remember, when you are being tempted, do not say, God is tempting me. God is never tempted to do wrong, and he never tempts anyone else. Now, I have looked that verse up in the original language, and that word never is a very interesting word. Do you know what it means? Never. Not at all. Not ever. It means just what you think it means. God is never tempted to do evil, and God never tempts you. So temptation never comes from God. And our tendency is to always try to blame. And even in regards to our sin, we try to blame others, or sometimes we try to blame God. But the passage is clear. God is never tempted to do evil, and he never tempts anyone else. So stop trying to blame him. In fact, concentrating on blaming someone else in the midst of your sin generally means you're just giving yourself an excuse to stay in that sin longer while you figure out who you get to blame for that sin. So stop blaming other people and uh, move forward. Instead, we should concentrate on solutions. The second step James gives is to be honest about where it's leading you. Be honest about where it's leading you. So look at verses 14 through 16. Temptation comes from our own desires which entice us and drag us away. These desires give birth to sinful action. And when sin is allowed to grow, it gives birth to death. So don't be misled, my dear brothers and sisters. In these verses, James spells out pretty clearly the process of sin and temptation. There's a very definite process for sin and temptation. It begins with desire. That's what it starts with. Uh, desire, by the way, is not particularly a bad thing. We can, we can and we do desire good things. 
We have desires that are good and pure and great. So when does desire become bad? It becomes bad when we try to satisfy it in ways that are opposed to God's plan. And the process of sin begins when we allow our desires to become evil, when we allow our desire for things to tempt us to steal or to be dishonest in business. That's when desire becomes evil. And when we seek to satisfy our normal and natural sexual desires outside of God's plan, then those desires become evil. But the process begins with desire, but then it moves to deception. It moves to deception. Verse 14 says that when our desires entice us and then they drag us away, those are interesting terms. They're fishing terms. It's absolutely throwing a line out in the water with a lure on it and uh, pulling it back in, trying to catch a fish. And uh, so it carries the idea of luring a fish with bait. And Satan hides uh, his temptation in very attractive bait. He tries to lure us and, and drag us away using attractive bait. And the bait's necessary, by the way. The bait's attractive and it's exciting. And if Satan didn't use bait, we would never decide to sin. We would resist sin. I mean, if Satan walked right up to you and said, hey, I have an idea. Why don't you cheat on your spouse? Here's what's going to happen. Cheat on your spouse and you will lose your marriage and you'll lose the respect of your children. And in a few months, you're going to be absolutely miserable and your life's going to be far more costly and far more complicated. Why don't you do that? If he said it that way, we would resist temptation every time, wouldn't we? So he has to use bait to lure us away. And Satan has deceived us. He's convinced us that it would just be harmless to do what we're thinking about or that we can get away with it without any consequences. And he deceives us and then we deceive ourselves. Then we deceive ourselves. We begin to say things to ourselves that just aren't true. We say to ourselves, I deserve this. We say to ourselves, uh, no one will ever know. Or we say to ourselves, I just can't help it. Or we say to ourselves, just this once won't hurt anything. And so deception starts with Satan luring us, but then we deceive ourselves. After deception comes disobedience. Verse 15 says it pretty simply. These desires give birth to sinful action. The desires give birth to sinful action. Sometimes it happens quickly, and sometimes it takes weeks or months, but eventually we give in to sinful actions. And notice the process. Desires involves my emotions, and deception involves my intellect, and disobedience involves my will. It's my choice. And at some point, we move to this stage with an act of our own will, with a decision of our own mind, we walk right into sin. We take the action of ignoring God's design and his plan, and then we walk into sin. And I've heard people say that they've fallen into sin before. Maybe you've said that, maybe you've thought that, maybe you've heard that, 
But the truth of the matter is most people don't fall into sin. They make a conscious choice knowing what they're doing. And um, we walk right into sin knowing exactly where we're going. But sin isn't the last stop. The last stop is death. Sin leads to death. But you already know that, don't you? You already know that. And before we talk about the spiritual death that the Bible is talking about in this verse, let's talk about the other ways that sin leads to death. Have you thought about the fact that sin leads to the death of your self-respect? You know what I'm talking about. The self-hate that goes on every time that you're in that quiet place dealing with your own sin. And sometimes we even say it aloud. I hate myself when I do that. I hate myself when I do that. And whether your sin is an addiction to a chemical or to food or to porn or whether it's an anger problem or an adultery problem, I'm guessing your self-respect died somewhere along the way. Sin also leads to the death of relationships with others. Hasn't sin caused the death of at least one relationship that was important to you? I'm thinking about some really close friends, almost like family, and they sinned against us and their relationship still appears to be dead. And some of you are in relationships that are in the process of dying right now. They're in the process of dying because of your sin. I mean, your marriage is dying because of that sin habit or your relationship with your kids or your parents is dying because you just won't stop that sin. Sin leads to the death of relationships. But sin also leads to the death of our relationship with God. And some of you know this from experience too. I mean, you were close to God one time and then you gave in to that sin and as a result you backed away from God. You put a little distance between you and God and then you continued that sin and that distance grew wider and wider and wider and it took some time but now your relationship with God is dead or at least it's on life support because of your sin and ultimately sin leads to eternal death. The passage is talking about that. When we die without Jesus, when we die without dealing with our sin, we are separated for God, from God, not just for a season, but for eternity. And that's what Jesus calls hell. And the point is, we can avoid all that. We have the ability to avoid all of that. We can avoid the trouble that we cause ourselves by clinging to Jesus again, by drawing close to him again, by trusting him alone to save us and to forgive us and to help us. We can win again spiritually by turning back to him and by letting him uh, cover us with his grace and forgive us completely. And we can let him control us and lead us. And we can let him give us a winning faith. Now we need to conclude here, but let me end by saying this. Maybe you've been facing a lot of difficulties this week. You've been facing a lot of difficulties, and it might be the trouble that life causes, and it's outside of your control, but it's just been a lot this week. Or maybe... It's the troubles that we cause ourselves and 
you didn't avoid that temptation, and you should have, but the pain it's caused is just overwhelming you right now. And no matter which direction the trouble in your life came from, maybe you've wondered, where is God in all of this? Where is God in all of this? Well, look at what James says in verses 17 and 18. Whatever is good and perfect is a gift coming down to us from God our Father who created all the lights in the heaven. He never changes or casts a shifting shadow. He chose to give birth to us by giving us his true word. And we, out of all creation, became his prized possession. Where is God? He's right there with you. He's in every good thing that is in your life because every good and perfect gift has come to you from God. He's there when it feels dark because he is the light and he gives light to every situation when we let him. And in the midst of your pain, don't forget that God hasn't changed That's what the passage says. He hasn't changed. He's exactly the same. He loves you even when you've screwed up. That hasn't changed. And even if you can't feel him there or sense him there, he is there with you in the middle of your mess. That hasn't changed. And he is far more interested in your holiness than he is in your happiness. He is far more interested in you getting to heaven than he is in you having a happy life here. That also hasn't changed because he hasn't changed at all. You see, winning faith means I suffer just like everybody else. But when I suffer, I understand, and the people around me eventually can see that the goodness of God is working in my life as I work and as I grow through the difficulties of my life that I can't avoid, and as they see me walking away from the stuff I can walk away from, God is in my life and working, and Jesus gives us the strength each day to do that. And maybe you're not feeling that strong today. Maybe you need to step to our next steps canopy after the service and let someone pray for you or Let someone help you and talk you through some of what you're going on. But Jesus gives us the strength each day to cling to him. If I will let him, he will help me with all of the difficulties in my life. I can endure the trouble that just life puts on me, and I can avoid the trouble that I cause myself. You see, that's part of having a winning faith. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the fact that you haven't changed, that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. And Father, as I look out, I see people in this room that are just overwhelmed with difficulties. And so, Father, I pray that you will just cause all of us to cling to you, to turn back to you, to trust you alone. Father, forgive us for the times when we've looked for Uh, wisdom in uh, this world. And Father, forgive us for the times when we've just walked full force into sin, ignoring your love for us and your wisdom for us. And Father, right now we cling to Jesus. Thank you so much, Father, that every day we can have a new start through Jesus. Thank you that your forgiveness is complete when we trust Jesus alone. 
And so, Father, right now, we just want to trust in Jesus and cling to him in Jesus' name.